from the studio of KPSU Portland and in association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, and fellow students. Thank you for joining us. I'm Robert Campbell, and this is Beyond Footnotes. This is a special episode for us here at Beyond Footnotes. Today, I will be turning the microphone on Josh and Ryan. They have both done some great historical work here at Portland State, and with them both graduating, it is the perfect time to see what they have been working on outside of this podcast. Joshua has been researching the Detroit 12th Street riots following the police raid on July 23, 1967. It thoroughly explores the reactions to the riot from not only local sources, but also from national sources. Ryan's project has been to research the Portland May Day Rally of 2000. This rally closed down Powell's bookstore for only the second time in its history, with many different unions and labor organizations having a hand in it. This rally is one of the most important tipping points in Portland's labor history. Joshua is an undergraduate student who will be completing his Bachelor's of History at the end of this term. He began his involvement in radio while hosting a weekly music show called Static and Distance. He tied his love of history into his love of radio with this podcast. He began his work on OPB's State of Wonder in January 2016 and continues to work as a production assistant for the show. Ryan moved to Portland in 2007 from Washington, D.C. Aside from making coffee and sandwiches for local food enthusiasts for the past decade, Ryan spends his time listening to podcasts and imagining a world in which food service workers are appreciated and compensated for their role in feeding society. Ryan began the Master's in Public History program at PSU in 2014 and centers his research on labor and working class history, as documented through oral histories. Ryan is also the Vice President of the Pacific Northwest Labor History Association of Oregon. Thanks for joining us, Joshua and Ryan. Welcome to Beyond Footnotes. Thank you. So, Joshua, what happened in the lead-up to the 12th Street Riot? So, on July 23rd, 1967, this is a Sunday night, and the Detroit police made this decision to raid a blind pig on the corner of Claremont and 12th Street. Now, for people who aren't familiar, blind pig is a illegal after-hours bar, essentially. This one happened to be housed in the United Civic League for Community Action Building. They were a local civil rights organization. And by night, it became a bar. And... These blind pigs were important to the city because many workers, particularly blue-collar minority workers, they'd be stuck with these late shifts where they're getting off at 3 or 4 in the morning, and they can't go to the normal bars to drink, and so these these blind pigs would sort of cater to that audience, that crowd. And on this particular night, a celebration was going on. There were a few more people in attendance than the police expected. When the undercover officer went in, he was expecting maybe a dozen, two dozen patrons, and there were over 80 of them, I think 85 in total. So they go forward with the raid regardless of that, and generally how these raids would work is they'd go in, maybe arrest the owner, a patron or two if they were fighting back or, you know, being disorderly, and then they'd be let go the next day. The blind pig would be reopened in a week or so, in most cases. This particular instance, for one reason or another, they decided to try and arrest all 85 people in attendance. You can imagine how this went with just a handful of officers there. The son of the blind pig's owner, uh, William Scott, actually escalated the violence by throwing a bottle. He was encouraging the crowd. He said, start hurting, baby. That was the, you know, people quoted as hearing him say that. 
it went from this sort of police confrontation that was a verbal thing to people sort of throwing things at the police as they have these 85 people lined up trying to arrest them. And so the police back off, the violence escalates, and it sort of goes from there. After the riot had ended, what was the state of the city? The riot lasted five days. The National Guard ended up being deployed. Got some statistics here because, honestly, the riot itself, I I studied the post-riot era a lot more. So there were about 7,231 people arrested. 2,509 buildings were looted. And there was 36 million in property damage. And this is in 1967. If you look at some of the photos, you can see the city was devastated. It was physically destroyed. And the discrimination then going on prior, it didn't go anywhere following the riot, especially in the immediate aftermath. And this led to a larger racial divide. You know, you look at some of the surveys that were done by local newspapers, and you see white policemen, white residents sort of blaming the black population for this violence without really recognizing the root causes of it. Black citizens of Detroit were long disgruntled with their their place in the city. And following the riot, that didn't really change. What changed was that whites were no longer ignoring that. They were seeing that, but reacting badly, and it is creating a, a larger divide. So what were some of the forms of discrimination in Detroit prior to the riot, and what form did that take? In 1943, there was a riot in Detroit as well. And following that riot, the Detroit Free Press, which is one of the papers I looked at the most, they're still around today, one of the biggest papers in Detroit at the time, especially. And their conclusion after the 43 riot was that housing inequality was to blame. And from that point on, not a whole lot done was, was done to address the housing inequality. Sidney Fine, who's a historian based out of Detroit, he's written a lot about the riots and the city itself. He did a study and kind of looked at housing discrimination up through 1968, following the, the first riot in 43. And he found that there was active opposition, some vocal and some a little bit more subtle, but you had the Michigan Real Estate Association, Detroit Taxpayers Union, and then all sorts of local businesses writing letters, again, sometimes very publicly making their views known, but often sort of passing on this information to the people in city government saying, essentially, if you pass housing equality legislation, we're going to leave. We think this will ruin the city by making it a more racially equal landscape. And so we're going to take our tax dollars and leave the city if you pass this sort of legislation. So housing was the big thing. It wasn't until 1968, following the riot, about a year later, that the Michigan Fair Housing Act was passed. And that was actually pushed by Governor Romney. But it was sort of a way of, you know, what's a half measure that we can take to keep this riot from happening again? It didn't address housing discrimination in the way it should have. And housing was a huge issue leading up to it. There was also police discrimination. In 1967, when the riot occurred, something like 15 or 20 percent of the police force was black, while the city's population was 35 to 40 percent black. So there's wide misrepresentation, all sorts of documented incidences, like this blind pig where it's excessive force, whether it's physical violence or arresting people for just sort of living their lives. Black people in Detroit were unfairly targeted in that regard. And the last thing that I would say that sort of laid the groundwork for this riot was discrimination in the workforce, and in particular in the auto industry. Not, not as huge of an industry now, of course, but at the time was one of the largest industries in the country. In the UAW, the union, Detroit Union, they 
on paper were trying to promote racial equality, but the fact was that most of the white workers were opposed to it. They didn't want to be working with black people. They didn't want to have to communicate with them and fight for their their concerns. They saw them as entirely different. They didn't see them as their neighbors or fellow workers. And of course I'm generalizing, but this is what a lot of the documentation seems to suggest, is that there was this ground-level discrimination. It, it wasn't necessarily entrenched in the union itself. It was within the fabric of the people who made up the union that were really opposing racial equality. And did the people of Detroit really see any indications that this riot might occur beforehand? You know, there were people who who were sort of raising the red flag. I think largely it came as a surprise to a lot of the white residents of Detroit. The Detroit Free Press does a lot of surveys that, that I've come across. And one of them, I think a couple months after the riot, it points to, you know, they, they interviewed police officers. And you can kind of see the statistics. What do you, How do white police officers answer this? How do black police officers answer this? What you find is that largely white officers thought Black people in Detroit had it a lot better than people in other cities. And you actually see statements like the, they're getting special treatment. They're, they have it better than, than us, which you can factually be disproven, but that was the impression at the time. And so I think a lot of people were surprised because, again, they didn't recognize this discrimination. It's nothing they experienced. And from their perception, black people had it better. I mean, they were, you You also see other statements like, well, look at the South, look how they're treated down there. We give them jobs up here. And just that sort of discourse, we give them jobs, you know, it's setting, it's setting it up from the beginning to not recognize the equality that's, the inequality that is there. One of the, the, the oral histories I came across was from Harriet Saperstein, who is in the League of Women Voters, and she was one of the first people to fight for a Citizens Police Review Board in Detroit. And she actually spoke at the, I, I believe it was the police union, it may have been just a gathering of police officers, but in any case, you know, they were sort of talking to her, hey, you, you have a better pulse on the black community, and they, they actually asked whether there'd be a riot, and this was immediately following the Newark riot, which happened about a week or two earlier. And I'm going to read her quote here. She said, my silence is my answer. What I do know is that if something happens this summer, it will be because of someone in this room. And I'm not blaming that person. It'll be someone inexperienced who doesn't know how to handle a crowd. And it's a tinderbox out there. Something will happen. No one will know what happened. And all hell will break loose. There were no, no attempts at reform or, or to address what she was saying. She wasn't laughed off. I mean, she, she had some clout and respect, but police officers, they didn't see what she was talking about. They didn't see this tinderbox. So switching gear to after the riot, what was the real perception of it in those years following? You know, it, it was it was all over the place. I mentioned a little bit about the white police officers who were surveyed. And black police officers, they, they agreed in a lot of ways that that this violence was perpetrated by the black community, but there was there was disagreement as to whether it was merited. You see sort of that split between police police officers in Detroit, between black and white officers. You also, um, you have the state government, uh, Governor Romney. He said in the day, the, the day that the riot 
ended. He said that racial inequality in the U.S. laid the groundwork for the Detroit riots. So in other words, he was recognizing that there is racial inequality, but he pointed to it as a national issue. And then you had uh, the Kerner Commission uh, set up by Lyndon B. Johnson, and that was sort of examining the causes of this riot, and that was a much more nuanced view. I guess I can go into that a little bit later, but you look at the media and op-ed pieces in the New York Times, and the opinions are, they're swinging wildly. You see there's a letter from a black soldier in Vietnam who says he's he's dismayed and afraid to actually come back. He feels safer and he feels more at peace in Vietnam than he does going back to his old neighborhood. In his defense, I mean, he, you know, again, if you look at images of the city, it, it was destroyed. And I could see how having grown up there in the neighborhood and then seeing those sorts of images, seeing these reports, a lot of them wildly exaggerated, being afraid for your city and for the country as a whole. I mean, again, this riot fell fell a week after the Newark riots, which were also very destructive and very alarming to to the country as a whole. And again, you know, these these opinions are all over the place. I mean, I could generalize about the media, but even, you know, the Detroit Free Press, the editor John Knight at the time, he would sort of point to the inequality in Detroit in his in his editorials following the riot, but they sort of all concluded with something along the lines of like yeah, there's problems, but uh, you know, he literally says in one one of them that black people need to have more respect for law and order. Not we need to address this racial inequality, but putting it on the shoulders of the people who really were the victims in this situation. You mentioned the uh, Kerner Commission, and I found this to be one of the more earnest examination into the causes of these riots. Uh, what conclusions did they really draw about the causes of the riot? To pull a quote directly from, from the report, they said that white racism is essentially responsible for this explosive mixture which has been accumulating in our city since the end of World War II. They didn't tiptoe around the issue. There was some examination in the report of the violence itself. They looked at the issue of Snipers, which I don't talk a lot a lot about in my paper, but a lot of the media would talk about there were snipers shooting at firefighters and police officers. And while that did happen, it, it, it wasn't as widespread. The Kerner Commission pretty quickly realized it wasn't something to focus their study on. They were more looking at the causes of this riot and how to prevent it from happening again. Sort of their conclusion on what was what was happening if these issues weren't addressed was that two societies were being created and they were two societies that were split on racial lines, and they weren't equal. So they laid out the, these inequalities, some of the things I talked about with housing, police discrimination, and they proposed some solutions, uh, increasing employment opportunities, educational opportunities for African Americans, and really tackling that housing discrimination. How was this report received? Well, you know, I think that... You know, it, it's hard to say. Uh, the New York Times seemed to be using this as to, to in their discussion of racial inequality they they cite the report a few times in different articles analyzing the riots so i think people did take it seriously but with the civil rights act having passed a few years before the riot obviously that didn't address all of these issues but i think that most of the people in the government in the federal government especially felt that they had already done enough and that these expensive huge overhauls of the educational system, of of their cities in general, it, it wasn't in the cards. They didn't see sort of the cost benefit, and so most of these solutions weren't implemented. So with your interest in music, 
Did you come across any interesting references while researching the perception of this 12th Street riot? Yeah, I actually began this paper thinking of writing about music to come out of the riots in general. There are a handful of songs that all sort of have different stories. You look at Motor City Burnings, originally performed by John Lee Hooker, who's a blues musician out of Detroit. And that same song, performed by the MC5, it sort of takes on a different connotation. I mean, the lyrics aren't changed very much, but the MC5 were heavily involved in politics in Detroit. They formed the White Panthers, which were basically an ally organization for the Black Panthers. And so their song, I I mean, if you've heard their version, it's a lot more sort of rockin', abrasive. It's like a call to action. And then you have songs like Panic in Detroit by David Bowie. He wasn't even at the riots. This is like an abstract interpretation from talking to Iggy Pop, who lived in the city. But one of the, I think one of the most interesting pieces I came across was this article in Harvard Business Journal, I believe, called Motown Misheard. And they're talking about Dancing in the Streets by Martha and Vandellas, which I imagine a lot of people have heard. That song, you know, Martha Reeves says it's a party song, and it's based on summers in Detroit. I mean, people opening fire hydrants, dancing in the street. It's a pretty, when you look at it that way, it's very obvious that it's a fun summer song. After the riots, people started looking at this song in a lot of music from black artists and trying to find these like hidden messages in there. There's a line in the song about it doesn't matter where you're from or what city you're in. I'm paraphrasing, but basically just get out on the street. It doesn't matter what you're doing. And so people sort of misinterpreted this after the riot as being a, a call to violence. And that that impression, despite no evidence, no, none of the people who have been interviewed who were actually present at the riot say they heard this song, or really any song. People weren't out playing music, having fun with this riot. It, it wasn't a fun thing for anybody involved. And again, Martha Reeves, talking after the riot, said again, no, this is a fun song, we're not a political band. And... But this perception carried on. After 9-11, the FCC put it on their list of 30 songs they suggest that not be played because it's a call for violence. They thought it's it's so strange that something that it's just this opinion that came up after a completely on, on um, substantiated opinion that came up after the riot that somehow has carried on into popular culture today. So the Tulsa Street Riot was an important turning point in Detroit history, but do you think it still is affecting the city till today? I do. You know, the Kerner Commission, none of those solutions were implemented. I mentioned the fair housing law that was passed in Michigan in 1968. It was in June 1968, so about a year after the riot. It was sort of a band-aid, and it did address those housing issues somewhat, but it wasn't a long-term solution. And you look at the city today, and it's... The racial divide following the riot, about 30% of the population was black and 70% of the population was white. A lot of those wealthy residents, both white and black, fled the city. And so a lot of the economic opportunity that was there is now gone. And you look at the city today and there's still very poor access to food, which people have, you can can very easily link to food inequality as being tied to racial inequality. I think you know, one of the only grocery stores there, you have Eastern Market, which is like a weekly market. But outside of that, you know, you have to get your food either outside the city 
at the Whole Foods on the college campus, or you have to buy it from a corner store. And so, you know, you tie that in with this, these housing issues that are in Detroit right now. And people talk about housing being cheap, but housing's cheap if you have you have a job and you have you have the opportunity to buy a house and someone will loan you money for to get a mortgage and there's still discrimination with all of that tied to the city especially with with the racial divide i think right now you look at the racial makeup of the city and the majority of the city is black and the majority of the business owners outside the city their parents left the city with their money and opportunities that they've then created outside that city. And I mean, Oakland County, this, the, you know, you cross Detroit and you're in Oakland County in Ferndale. It's the third richest County in the United States and Detroit Wayne County is one of the poorest. So to have that sharp of a divide, I'm getting a little bit off tangent. I'm going to start giving my opinions on the subject having grown up there, but I, I think there are a lot of a lot of scars the city still has. Thank you, Joshua. So we're gonna switch gears here and talk to Ryan about this rally at Powell's. So uh, May Day is always an exciting and inflammatory day in Portland, but what made the May Day of 2000 more significant than a lot of the others? Well. The holiday itself, May Day, in the United States is pretty contested, mostly as a result of Red Scare ideas from the 50s and onward. So, But what we see in 2000 is a, a revitalization of the holiday as a day of, of protest and action. To be all told, there were only, I believe, a few hundred marchers on May Day 2000. The marches began on the on the east side of the city and took the streets and didn't maintain sidewalk you know rules and crossed the bridges and there were lively floats. It was a a lively event and I think it was significant because now sixteen years later, May Day is kind of like it's a standard event within the radical and political community as well as the labor community and also converging into so many others. I think it really laid the groundwork for 2006 when the the immigrant, the day without an immigrant, where immigrant workers went on strike on May Day in 2006. It really kind of helped lay the groundwork, began making connecting movements and people to prepare for that, that sort of ground surge six years later. So who are the actors involved in this rally? So May Day um, and the rallies, the rally outside of Powell's was actually the, the last, it was supposed to be, the, I think, the last event of the day. There were marches in the beginning part, which were supposed to converge into a picnic and a rally in front of Powell's where they, they were going to have some speeches. And that was, you know, the, the planned expectation. However, in the afternoon, the police, Portland police, Unleashed what was in the in the eyes of the pro, of the demonstrators a sort of a, a sort of an enormous amount of force upon such what was relatively and was a peaceful uh, march and rally. There were police on horses, and it was also the the the, the sort of the debut of the police ATVs, which they rode through crowds. There is some video online that you can watch where the horses were being kind of bucked in the crowds and people were, were having to 
getting knocked down and having to be pulled out from underneath horses. Uh, beanbag guns were uh, fired at demonstrators. There were a number of arrests, and there was a, a rallying of the demonstrators onto the waterfront where a lot of them had to flee, and then they fleed to Powell's because they knew that was where another converging point in the afternoon was. So you had a lot of different groups. It was... Um, the ILWU Local 5, which is the, the union for the Powell's Bookstore workers, were the ones putting on the picnic and the rally. But uh, Jobs of Justice, Art and Revolution, folks from the environmental movement, including Cascadia Forest Alliance, and then your radical activists all kind of converged on that day. And it, I think it was coming part of – you can't tell the story of May Day 2000 without including the fact that several months earlier, the WTO protests in Seattle in 1999 – the, the inspiration that came from that and shutting down what was, you know, what had not been shut down before, both sparked inspiration among the, the left, the radical left and labor, as well as I think you could also say the right in regards to how the police responded. And there was a lot of criticism of Mark Kroger, who was a police chief at that time and who came from Los Angeles. And there's a lot of the the responsibility for the, that fell upon him for how he conducted the police behavior during that. But yeah, so everything converged in front of the store. How is the unrest around Powell's bookstore related to the economic conditions in Portland and even the United States at the time? Well, let me, uh, I guess I need to finish that story about what happened at the, the, the bookstore. So it's fascinating, and really it was the, the entry point for me to be looking into this history, because as I arrived to Portland and started getting involved into uh, food service worker organizing, I heard this story of what happened outside of Powell's on May Day, in which you had the Powell's workers who were on strike that day. They took the day, and they were picketing outside the store. And there was the rally scheduled for around 5 o'clock. And at that time, you had the police pretty much barricaded off the streets, keeping the, the demonstrators in front of the store and preventing anyone from getting to the store. Around the same time, the folks who were on the waterfront who were fleeing the police arrests and violence were converging on Powell's as well, which was the most one of the more significant confluences of that day, which is that there was a international convention of the ILWU, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union. So there were 500 longshoremen who were coming from the Hilton to rally outside of Powell's. This was a known fact. This was going to be happening. It was supposed to be just a speech and then dismiss. The police kind of asked them not to proceed anymore because of what had happened earlier, and the longshoremen refused. President of the union at that time, Brian McWilliams, led the, the, the longshoremen across Burnside, and in the oral histories I've been fortunate enough to read, one officer swung a club at him and f missed, and that officer was pulled to the back, and the police allowed the longshoremen to cross the street and join the strike. Powell's locked the doors and shut down, as you said, for the second time in its history. And that was a huge boost to a lot of the, the strikers, the Powell's workers, the radical community, and because the longshoremen did not back down in front of that police resistance, and the police let that you know, gave way on that day. And it really showed the, the, the alliances and the, 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 the connectivity of this action with the longshoremen, the bookstore workers, and the radical left all participating. 
So getting back to your question, why, what was the economic conditions at that time? Well, for first, in the bookstores, I think it's fascinating to look at bookstores in this area. Uh, between 1996 and 2003, which is kind of the period of time I'm looking at, there were over two dozen union campaigns at bookstores around the country, which did not happen that much before. There had been unions and bookstores. Strand in New York City is organized and has been since the 70s. Uh, Stacy's Books, which is now closed in San Francisco, was organized as well. So unions and bookstores were not uncommon. They weren't unheard of, but it was also uncommon for these campaigns to be happening. And those kind of converged, those union campaigns converged at the same time as the book selling sector was really conglomerating. This is when the uh, the killer bees, Borders and Barnes and Noble, were starting to really expand aggressively um, everywhere, particularly in Portland as well. Popping up stores, Borders opened their downtown location around 96, 97. And then Barnes and Noble's also o- opened up stores surrounding. And while Powell's had a lot of competition in the past from B. Dalton's and Walden Books and J.K. Gill's, Previously, those were smaller mall stores and the competition that was coming from Borders now and Barnes and Noble and also the arrival of Amazon. There was a lot of economic economic issues both affecting the bookstore sellers and the bookstore workers. On the workers' behalf, why these folks were organizing is that at that time to get a job at Borders, you took took a test um, to prove that you were up to the level to sell books in their store. However, your pay and benefits were fairly on par with most other retail workers, which was far below the living wage. So there's this, and there, I think also at this time, there was this question of how information was supposed to be distributed in our society. And there was a lot of uncertainty about what it meant to have one, like Borders or Barnes & Noble, be the bookstore of the, the, the planet or Powell's. So there was a lot of uncertainty over where information and how books are going to be sold in the future. And also, workers are beginning to lose that that skill on the job as a result of computerization. The reliance on a book clerk's knowledge of titles and authors was being replaced by computers to search. So there's a lot of issues converging at this time. And generally, also... Unemployment was at its lowest point in the late 90s in Portland at that, as measured unemployment rates go, which gave, I mean, workers who were organizing a lot more, I think, strength, knowing that there was not as many folks lining up outside to work at the store. So at what point did the uh, labor union in Powell's really begin, and, like, what's their solid starting point? That's difficult to to always describe but uh, if i had to put a date it was definitely september of 1998 Uh, the immediate cause of the organizing campaign at powell's was an email that was sent out by the the management informing workers that the anticipated raises and agreed upon raises that they were going to be getting in the coming year were going to be reduced and that they would also not be across the board for everyone but there would be a system of reviewing everyone and everyone would get something different based upon their managers. So it was a break of course from what had been agreed upon already, which caused a a flurry of organizing at the main store on Burnside. The story goes is 
one worker walked around the store with a sign written on his on a piece of cardboard that he would flash to co-workers that just said meet at Wrinkler's Annex after work at 10. And so that's where the that, the idea of a, a union came was that very night they began organizing. However, this ball was already in motion. The The management team had also adjusted how the sections were structured as far as employee responsibilities, removing a lot of the power that workers had in deciding what books were gonna be shelved and bought and breaking up some of those traditional skill sets that workers had and pride that they had in their job. And also the computerization had just occurred as well. And there were rumblings for a couple of years. And it wasn't the first time folks tried to organize Powell's. In the early 90s, there was a union drive that was public done by the Oregon OPEU, and they collected cards, but they they never turned them in. And there were certain gains made, concessions made by Powell's management at that time to kind of quiet the storm, but obviously not nearly enough because of what happened starting in 1998. So that's the beginning. And then you were looking at about a two-year, very public series of events in Portland's history. Just the quick dates, in April of 1999, they voted for the union in the election, and the, the union won. And, but they didn't get their contract approved until August of 2000. So this, this campaign is divided up into three stages, which is most union campaigns are. You have the organizing phase, which is from like about September until when they are petitioning for an election, which came in, I think, of March. So then you have the, the recognition campaign. So they're getting organized first. They're meeting at the Workers' Organizing Committee, which is what used to be on East Burnside and 8th. I believe it's now Le Pigeon, like that restaurant there. That used to be a workers' organizing center. And that's where some of the first meetings for the union were. And then they petitioned for the the union. They they won by a slim margin. It was 161 for the union, 155 against. So it's very – you can't get that much closer. And there were also five contested ballots that were not counted at all. So you're really looking at one vote difference. And it took a long time for them to get that contract, which was that third phase that took the longest time and was the most contentious component of the deal. So you mentioned the union contract. What did that really contain? So like most union contracts, again, uh, the reason why most workers seek union is just cause for dismissal as opposed to at will. That was basic. But what the workers were also looking for is some voice. I mean, what they their main slogan was, no decisions about us without us. They wanted a voice within the, the, the issues that were going to affect their livelihood, many of them making about $8 an hour or less, folks who had been there a very long time some, since they had been open. So what the contract was able to achieve was an 18% wage increase over three years, which was guaranteed cost of living increases, which is a direct response to what started the campaign, which was, you know, a unilateral change to what was agreed upon. There was also 401k adjustments, improvements, a grievance procedure, 
many different rules regarding protecting uh, promotions and increases to the educational benefit that they had. They did have benefits before, and they did have Michael Powell and Powell's Bookstore had a $200 childcare benefit for workers there before and had always prided himself on providing great benefits and wages to his workers. So the voice, I think, was the really what the, I think the employees felt like they were organizing for in the workplace. What happened in the immediate aftermath of that rally? So that was a real pivotal moment for the campaign because, like I said, it was May in 2000. They had already been bargaining for, I believe, eight months at that time. And the strategy that was speculated and evidence of is that the management of Powell's was simply waiting. In union campaigns and union contract negotiations, the greatest strength often for management is time. Time allows turnover time allows the organization to, 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 to fall apart. So there was an, a small effort to try to decertify the union after one year of, after the vote, which didn't work. And the rally itself demonstrated that the workers were able to shut down the store. And there had been an escalation of rallies Dating back to dating back for since one of the workers was fired earlier in the year before in 1999. So there was there's an escalation of tactics, and the workers themselves, the union, was actually preparing to do a boycott campaign in the city later. So the the effect of it really was a momentum shift. The shift of the momentum away from management being able to stall to to the workers, and it also set the stage for the next big momentum shift, which was Jobs of Justice's Workers' Rights Board hearing, where it's a city, I, tribunal sounds like too tough of a word, but it's a city sort of like hearing on the, the issues of great importance in the labor community. And in this Workers' Rights Board, Workers gave testimony about their their wages and their working conditions and their lives and struggles, and why. And the, and the result was a compelling letters, series of letters and commentary encouraging Michael Powell to negotiate with his workers um, in good faith and to settle the contract, which actually is credited for moving management into a position of working and signing the contract. So what effect did this rally have in the contract on the long-term union at Powell's? I think it on the long-term union at Powell's, this rally, it, it definitely showed strength. I think it, it, it was, I think all of these actions for, for the, for workers in general, but for the, for, for this group of workers, their educational experiences and their training, the workers would, end up having to have a long contract fight three years later as well, which brought out, again, discussions of boycott and strikes and walkouts. So what this did in 2000, it was preparing them for more struggles in the future and also really starting to to coalesce the, the support that they got from groups like Jobs of Justice and the, the labor community, like uh, the Teamsters and other unions. So I think it was a moment where the city was, or the labor community was united. And it was in the the discussions on whether or not Powell's workers should be able to have a union or if their conduct was appropriate, was filling the pages of editorials for the Oregonian, the Portland Business Journal, 
the Willamette week. And I think it it, it definitely it was a momentum shift, and it was reflected in a lot of the oral histories that that was a day when they, that like the, it was a huge confidence boost after a long delay in negotiation. I think it's it is also very inspirational for the rest of the labor movement at the time, and very instructional. I think always to see how labor community groups partnered to 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 fight for living wages for workers in Portland. Thank you very much, Ryan. Beyond Footnotes is sponsored by the PSU Department of History and was recorded in the studios of KPSU. You can find information about the music in this episode on our show page at kpsu.org. This is our last episode of this season. As we say, farewell and congratulations to Ryan and Joshua as they wrap up their time here at Portland State. If you want to hear past episodes of Beyond Footnotes, you can find us on iTunes or SoundCloud.com slash Beyond Footnotes. We're also on a number of podcasting networks, including Stitcher, Google Play, and Pocket Cats. And of course, we're also on Facebook and Twitter at Beyond Footnotes. Make sure to catch us next year, and we'll be back at it with a ton of you have come to expect and much more. Signing off, I'm Robert Campbell.